Pat mentioned, we'll be looking this morning at Matthew chapter <clears throat> 11. Specifically, I'd like to focus on the response uh, of sinful man in their rejection of Jesus, beginning in verse 16, uh, following down through verse 19. notes I don't normally uh, have a an outline or anything uh, but if you often feel compelled to take notes like my wife does you may write down three uh, particular points uh, to take note of during this morning's sermon I'm considering uh, a prophetical statement that is made in verse 19 uh, there will be three things to see the prophecy of God's sovereignty the prophecy of God's sanctification and the evidence thereof and the prophecy of God's salvation through substitutionary atonement we'll begin by reading uh, the word this morning and then we'll go into uh, prayer and return to the sermon uh, beginning the first part of chapter 11 it says when jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities now when john while in prison heard of the works of christ he sent word by his disciples said to him are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I will tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a, deer, a, a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden th these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this is the way well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word this morning, Lord, we praise you, first of all, God, for allowing us to see who you are, the infinite, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God of heaven, the creator of everything that has been created, the eternal God of whom this text speaks, the gracious God, the merciful God, the loving God, the God who has beside him his only begotten son who is serving as a priest and a mediator and an advocate and who will soon judge the entire world. What a righteous standard of judgment does this Christ have? A light burden that has been projected from this morning's text is his call unto sinners to take his yoke, to partake of his goodness and his righteousness, understanding that our sin may be cast upon him and his righteousness may be imputed unto us. A magnificent feat of salvation is described. Lord, a, a perfect picture of a wonderful, just, and holy truthful God is presented this morning where the reality of sin as well is revealed where we pray that we may glean from this morning's text that we may be sanctified uh, that we may be spurred to good works or that we may see that our calling unto salvation and into evangelism uh, is not only heard God but is honored by obedience and work and effort on behalf of man, Lord, all of these things uh, most certainly rely upon your sovereignty, and we pray, God, that you would enable us, Lord, and cause us to and will us to do that which you have called us to do, in order that we may uh, find success, but not for ourselves, O oh God, not for our local body, but for our Savior whom we serve, uh, for his exaltation and for his glory, Lord, let it be this morning, the main reason, 
in which we worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I said this morning, we're looking for the sovereignty of God, the sanctification of God, and the salvation through His substitutionary atonement. All of these things are really presented to us in just three verses as a response uh, on behalf of sinful, quote-unquote, professing believers. Uh, This is a rejection uh, by the men of Jesus' time on earth. And we will see that beginning there in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? Uh, Question posed here. Uh, after Jesus had just soon finished giving his disciple, disciples rather instruction, what shall I compare this generation? And what we will soon see is that the reality of sin is that there is no small sin. In fact, every transgression against God is a big transgression because it is a great falling away from the righteousness that God has called us to. It is a great failure. It is a great, as Jimmy says when he prays, falling short. What shall I compare this generation to? Interesting that the choice of words there is what and not who. In one sense, it is inferred that they shall be compared to the righteous standard of Christ, but the reality is to be compared to what is to be compared to something or someone or a city or a town or whatever you would like to place in there that does not deserve the goodness of God, that does not understand the righteousness and the holiness of God, that does not dare take upon themselves his sanctification or his mindset or his will to do his work. The question is asked somewhat rhetorically, there in verse 16 and it is responded to by this it is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say we played the flute for you and you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not mourn for john came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon quickly we see that these people this generation is compared to children who are in one sense out playing and things that should be and most oftentimes are desired are not hearkened unto. And quickly the mood changes from uh, a comparison and an illustration of children and singing and dancing to that ministry of John the Baptist. Had no intention this week of coming to this passage, but I was confronted throughout the week with several instances and circumstances in which uh, I must say came from professing believers in which my attention was called to the person of Christ and to consider what is said there in verse 19, uh, though it was said out of ignorance that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I was reminded of that in circumstances in which believers did not invoke nor look for or try to intimidate, uh, intimidate, excuse me, imitate the character of Christ in a situation where we as well are called to be friends of sinners. In fact, as we will look at the text this morning, we will consider the term friend 
and we will consider the term sinner, and oftentimes we will find that we have a somewhat failing, short understanding of both of those terms. We have just uh, a skim-the-surface type understanding of what it means to be a friend. And unfortunately, when it comes to sin, we as well have a very shallow understanding of what it means to be a sinner. The context of this particular text is not altogether enjoyable. It's actually a statement that is made here about Jesus Christ, who is titled in verse 19, the Son of Man, and he is essentially mocked by those who reject him as they call him a friend of tax collectors and sinners when the inference is that he should have been if he is the son of god a friend of only holy men a friend of only righteous men a friend of only religious men and what we see is that there has been uh, a great multitude of religious people whom jesus has come across and they have rejected him essentially they have not only rejected jesus but they have rejected that true religion which james would speak of they have rejected the true god of heaven and as jesus makes it very plainly uh, state stated there at the end of the chapter they have rejected not only the son but the father they know neither one and there is not only a call represented to christians and to believers and to those who profess to be followers and disciples of christ but there is revealed an indictment against them. Consider again, verse 18, John came neither eating or drinking. John didn't come eating or drinking. There's a distinction being made here between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. You see, John had a what is considered a very rigid and a coarse very defined, boldly following of Christ. John rejected what most of the world would find acceptable. John would refrain and abstain from things that we will soon see uh, are enjoyed by those who seek the pleasure of the world. And then when Christ comes, it was not that he was engaged in sin, but Christ was revealing the freedom that he has offered sinners and that distinction is being made. John didn't eat or drink, and you said the same things of him. You made mockeries of him. You rejected him first. And if you have rejected John, the reality is that you most certainly will reject Jesus the Christ. There is no ability in man uh, if he cannot see through uh, even John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. He will follow no true disciple of Christ. If you have rejected Jesus himself, doesn't it reason and stand to reason that you would reject John and you would reject any true gospel minister, any uh, biblically sound doctrine that speaks of Christ? The reality here is first brought upon the sovereignty of God. And even the end of the passage uh, really restates that as Jesus has come to me. But he says it would be even better well received in Sodom the message that you had received they would have repented yet it is cast upon the will of Jesus the Christ as is given him the father to reveal himself he says that in no uncertain terms anyone to whom the son 
wills to reveal. And so we see the sovereignty of God in both uh, the saving of men as it is posed both spiritually and literally and physically with these cities and Sodom and Gomorrah. And it has also revealed the sovereignty of God through the sanctification of men by the revealing of Christ through the scriptures, by the revealing of God through Jesus the Christ. There is the sovereignty of God that he must do the work. Not only that he must do, but that he has done the work. We also will see the sanctification as men are made aware of these things and men are called no longer to reject the Christ but to accept the Christ and not only to accept the Christ but to follow the Christ and not only to follow the Christ but to be obedient to Christ. All of these things, they seem seemingly elementary to a Christian. But to a large number of believers, we feel like that we may profess and neither obey nor claim uh, to obey or follow Jesus says this is what they did to John even though uh, he ate not and drank not there was no uh, fault found in him though being still a sinful man because he was not Jesus himself they still said he has a demon and then the son of man comes and because he's opposite of John because he does eat he expresses the freedom that he has uh, being God himself in the flesh he eats and he drinks and he's part of what you said John was missing and yet what do you say to him you call him a glutton you call him a drunker you call him a friend of tax collectors and sinners you were in one sense denying the deity of Christ by calling him all of these things and yet the focus this morning I believe for the church is to see that Jesus is called a friend of sinners a statement that was meant to mock jesus a statement that was meant to deny the deity of christ uh, to deny the will of god and the sovereignty of god the ability to sanctify as god is sanctifying yet in these things as we have seen so many times before it does not take a spiritual man to prophecy about jesus it only takes the will of god god can use rocks god can use circumstances god can use inanimate objects pictures words and people to speak of christ and that is what he does here matthew chapter 9 uh, verse uh, 11 specifically uh, excuse me matthew chapter 11 verses 16 through 19 specifically are really an attack upon Jesus' ability, character, and reputation. All of those things which cannot be perceived by the man who is not saved, by the unregenerate man. The very uh, things that they call an accusation against Christ are evidence of his ability to save. Pharisees, being these men would say these things about jesus we're trying to deny his eligibility as a savior as a true man of god when in fact uh, when calling jesus a friend of sinners they did not know that it would be wonderful to be counted a friend of jesus 
no matter if you were the tax collector or the sinner, they were excluding themselves, though still being sinful men. Ironically, the same uh, account is given in Luke. These Pharisees not wanting to be associated with tax collectors and sinners, yet these were called friends of Jesus. And this was not an ignorant statement altogether, but it was a prophecy that Jesus truly is a friend of sinners. Firstly, I would like us to consider what it means to be a friend. I try very often to make distinctions uh, in my speech and conversation with people and make that uh, difference known between friends and acquaintances. I often say, buddy or acquaintance. I try to accurately depict what true friendship is like. When Bethany and I found out that Nathan and Christine were going to take us to see John, I called Nathan. I said, we wanted to call our friends and tell them that we were going to Alaska to see John, but then we realized there were very few people that we call friends, and we could just basically just turn around and call you back and say, thanks, you're taking us to Alaska. The, re the reality is that we have and you have very few friends. At the top of that list, when we consider true friendship, should be, if we are believers, Jesus the Christ. He is a friend in the sense that we may call upon him and he is willing to speak with us. The text of Scripture says that we have the ear of Christ and that we have the ear of God. We have his attention. We sing it in the hymns that he cares for me. This morning we sang in the last hymn that he took my burden, singular, a singular burden that encompasses all burdens. That is what a friend is able to do. A friend is one who listens, one who speaks, one who shares in burdens, one who enables is willing to lift those burdens and help make them light, carry those burdens. This morning as we look at the picture of the true Christ who is Jesus, he is a friend who does all those things and indeed relieves us of the burden of sin. If we continue, uh, we'll find hundreds of occurrences of what friendship looks like in the Bible, both uh, positive and negative connotations, because we know that there are a distinction amongst friends. There are friends of Jesus, as is a part of this ridicule that we read of the Pharisees, and there are friends of the world. So we consider some of those. I want to read some verses to you. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. He saw their faith and said to him, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The very first verse that we read from Luke this morning declares how a friend who is Jesus, is able to forgive sins. A powerful friendship, a powerful God in the flesh, a mark of the prophecy of God's sovereignty in verse 19 as Jesus is revealed as a friend to remove sin. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said to him in verse 50, Friend, why are you here? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. It was a depiction of what friendship 
really was not. What appeared to be in the text a friend and what was actually indeed an enemy. We have a negative connotation, a lacking of the development of true friendship. Yet we know at this time, again, it served as a prophecy because what Christ was doing as he was being seized to be taken to the cross as an innocent lamb of God, spotless and without blemish, to be sacrificed for his friends. No greater love is there than this man, the Bible says, than a man who lay down his life for his friends. There again is a picture not only of friendship but of true unadulterated friendship to the point in which he lays down his life for his friends. We begin to consider over and over again it says in John chapter 3 verse 29 he who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice this my joy therefore is made full friends are rejoicing at the sight of Christ at the revelation of Christ when this is depicted here this morning, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, though it is a, a rejection of Jesus because he is associated with sinners, it is a welcoming sign to those of us who are counted in these number of sinners because we may rejoice at the sight of a Savior, a Savior who is a friend, a friend who sticketh, as the Bible says, closer than a brother. John chapter 14, verse 18, I will not let you be without a friend Jesus depicted over and over again as a friend a friend who is saving a friend who is relieving burdens a friend throughout his earthly ministry three and a half years uh, as it seems going to those whom he would call friend and healing them even not only of spiritual eternal uh, salvation type things but even of physical infirmities we know that uh, in the old testament as we're considering the friendship of jesus that they would come and they would say our friend lazarus is sick and soon our friend lazarus is dead and jesus attends to him and calls him again friend lazarus and what does he do he not only saves, but he brings to life. This morning when we see uh, Jesus called a friend of sinners, we recognize that Jesus is resurrecting. Jesus is bringing dead men to life. And it's amazing how many times over and over again we'll see the friendship of Jesus denoted in an action in which Jesus is willingly taking over something that is causing pain, something that is sinful in, of, in and of itself and a result of sin, and he is making it new again. And yet, when we see that Jesus is a friend of sinners, this is not to uh, reveal or insinuate that Jesus is a friend of every single sinner in the world. Are we not aware of what James chapter 4, verse 4 says? It says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, 
Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. When it says Jesus was a friend of sinners, it wasn't saying the entire world full of sinners. Jesus is a friend of particular sinners. I believe that Paul the Apostle would extend to us that Jesus is a friend of the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. Friendship is not to be denoted uh, necessarily with an entire race of people, but with a particular group. Those who have recognized because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and because of the teaching of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they have denoted in their lives that there is sin and that there is only one righteous God. There is not a differing view amongst the text of scriptures about what is included in friendship, but there is a harmony with the gospels and with all of the books of Bibles about uh, of the Bible about what true friendship is. It is that this man has given his life and has been concerned with the affairs of sinful men and has caused them to repent. Let us look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sorry, my pages are sticking together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at verses uh, 9 there through 12. I wrote you in my letter. This is again a, a, a letter of Paul, the apostle, uh, to the church at Corinth. I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world but actually i wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother who is an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You may begin to see the sanctification of God's people being revealed in this prophecy as Jesus is called a friend of sinners because Paul is writing what he means when he says do not associate with the world and with immoral people. He's not talking about don't be friends with people because they are engaged in sin. Rather, he is telling us to disconnect from those who call themselves believers and who engage in willful sin. In fact, when we see that we are called uh, to minister to the public, to the unregenerate man, we see that we have the liberty and the freedom and the necessity to go forth to those who are sinners and be found amongst them. Jesus was a friend of sinners in which 
he saved them, so shall the church be in which they are concerned with sinners who are engaged in sin to the point in which they will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as Jesus did himself. They will preach the gospel as John did, declaring that sin is sinful and that it is wicked. It's an abomination, these things, and that God will judge them. And what often we see as we uh, depict friendship from the text that we read this morning is that the Christian wants to say that, well, we just can't be present where there is sin. We're not allowed to be around sinners. Yet Jesus came to save sinners. What we recognize is that there is a form of blasphemy that occurs within the church in which people will profess that Jesus is the Christ and follow him not and engage in willful sin. Yet the text of 1 Corinthians declared that we are to be amongst these immoral people. We, if we be members of the church, we'll be found amongst sinners. In one sense, it's the greatest of places to be. The church that belongs to Jesus Christ, a church of sinners, sinners who are looking for the salvation that Jesus Christ offers, who are looking for the sovereignty that God has put on display in his word, who are looking to be sanctified and made like Jesus. It's not a terrible thing to be a friend of sinners, but we must be careful that if we find ourselves engaging in some kind of friendship or ideology that associates righteousness apart from sinning then we have most definitely deceived our own selves in fact part of the reason that we would find ourselves here this morning is that i want us to be aware that we are still sinners that there is sanctification that is happening when we endure sound doctrine when we read the word of god he is sanctifying because we are not pure and holy as Christ is holy. That should be our desire. We have one of two camps. We may become super legalistic in the fact that we think that we cannot be around people if they sin, and therefore we would find out if everyone takes upon themselves that attitude, there would, no, there would be no church. There would be no pastor because he would say, hey, I can't meet with those people. They're sinners. They're terrible pastor couldn't even meet with himself because he would say hey i can't be around me i'm a sinner i'm terrible the reality is that we must with the mindset of jesus view sin that true sinners are those who are admitting their sin jesus is a friend of these men jesus is a savior to these men and in actuality, as we see Jesus being called a friend of sinners, it is a wonderful thing because he does not uh, work in, uh, I guess, the term I'm looking for, opposition to his own word. He is not a friend of the world. He is not at enmity with himself or with the Father by being a friend of the world. He is a friend of sinners who have responded and who will respond to the gospel appropriately, how does he know? Because he's Jesus. Because he's the Christ. Because he has saved, and this is the last point of 
text this morning. He is saved through substitutionary atonement. He has paid the sin debt for those who are sinners and who belong to him. In all actuality, when we begin to look at sin and we're honest, we will find that we are as guilty as the next man. And if Jesus is a friend of sinners, he's not talking about the world, but he's talking about his flock. It's a wonderful thing to consider that, to consider that Jesus has called us by name as sheep of his fold and has acted and who continues to act as a friend. I want us to look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, uh, just a segment of Galatians chapter 4. It says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? An epistle of Paul, he's asking a question here, and he's really indirectly but finitely speaking about the friendship of Christ. He says, Am I now no longer your friend but your enemy? Because I tell you the truth, because I preach the reality of sin, what he's telling you is that the revelation of sin is true friendship. True friendship. How is that? Because that's what Jesus has done. In the text, when Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, he is called such because he has ministered to them, revealing the truth of his righteousness and the falling short of their own persons. In that, we know that the gospel serves as a threefold model. It causes us to see Jesus without sin so that we may see ourselves full of sin to return to gaze at the Christ who is without sin. Like I said, many things throughout the past week have led me here because we oftentimes take the position that because we are saved, we are without sin. In essence, we have rejected Jesus, even if for a moment, though we be true believers, we have rejected Jesus when we call out and say, there is one who is a friend of sinners. I can't be there. I can't be associated with him. As a Christian, we are called to be associated with sinners, to even see ourselves as sinners. The distinction made between the Pharisees and these sinners whom Jesus is a friend of is that they know that they cannot find perfection. True sinners. Repentant sinners. These Pharisees and the Sadducees and any other group of uh, religious, quote-unquote, people that are apart from Christ do not see sinfulness. If we cannot see sinfulness... For what it is and we do not battle with sin as we should and we do not rely upon Christ as we are called to we are indeed no believers at all the reality is that uh, in just such a short text Jesus uh, is, call, is called before our eyes to be a mark of perfection is defined in all of his glory the son of man who we know distinctly is as well the Son of God. The prophecy that is declared in verse 19 is how men see Jesus, but it is the reality of his birth that was prophesied from the beginning before Jesus ever came in human flesh, that he was born of a Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and that he did what was good. 
wasn't the food that would defile a man. Obviously, Jesus ate, Jesus drank. It wasn't uh, being found amongst sinners that would make someone unworthy because that's where Jesus was often found. It was the denial of being part of that. When we deny that we are sinners, we are in essence saying we are not part of fallen humanity. We are in essence declaring that we need no Savior and that we may rely upon self. But the text uh, causes us to move and to trust in Jesus, this friend of tax collectors and sinners, this friend of man who have done such obvious wicked deeds against God. And it says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds the truth is indeed setting us free as christians as we are called to see the prophecy of god's own son here the sovereign savior whom saves who he wills he says i could have done these things for sodom and they would have repented he's not saying that guessing what would have happened he's saying these very deeds that we deny and that many have continued to deny. They would have served as enough to make some believe. I didn't make them available for these men. I didn't make them available for this city. Why is that? Quite simply put, His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The sovereignty of God is put on display in the wisdom of God, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then the sanctification to see that it is necessary, to see that the gospel is what is essential in understanding that we are sinners and that He is the Savior. Seeing righteousness. And then somewhere in the middle, I won't say lastly because it's hard to put an order to it, but to see the salvation of God through his sovereignty, through his sanctification, and that Jesus was there for a particular group of sinners, not willing that any should perish. And often we take that out of context and forget that it says, to us word, a group of sinners, a group of sinners that we may simply define in such a shorter term as the church. Here is the group that Christ is friends with, the group that he is taking the burden away from, the group that he is caring for, the group that he has gone to the cross indeed for. When Jesus was called a friend of sinners, he should have been called the lamb, the Passover lamb. That was the reality of what this friend of sinners is and who he is. Reality is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, though uh, in alternate terms, pointing out the negative connotation, Christ is being the truth, revealing the positive connotation. He is a friend by showing us the truth. He is a friend by being the truth. This is not just Jesus who is the truth, but he is the truth who is represented as life. The light 
of the world, the Savior of men. This morning, my prayer is that not only our church in Anniston, but that churches everywhere will, will read this passage and see that it is a prophetic statement about who Jesus is saving and how Jesus is saving them. And also, uh, it is a warning for us to hearken unto, not to disconnect ourselves from an assembly simply because we see sin. If we see sin, uh, it is a revelation of God from heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that we may see it and flee from it and that we may see others in it and snatch them from the fire. Sin is an odd thing. I often think of sin like, like I do a fire, a person drowning in the waves. Anytime that we would find ourselves in a fire, we should run from it. But when we find others there, it is often regarded as an act of, uh, of heroic deed that we would rush in and pull them out. That's the reality of sin. That when we are found in it, we uh, try to escape and that we desire to escape and that we can only do that through the Word of God. And that is where the sovereignty and the sanctification of God is presented to us. But when we find others there as well, we're prayerfully considered them and we're so concerned that we're willing to rush in and show them the way out. The way is Jesus. The truth is the light of the world. The Son of Man, as he is presented this morning, he is not a Christ that should be rejected and he is not a Christ that we may on our own accept. He is simply the Christ, never ceasing to be never being anything less than God in the flesh. That is the Christ in whom we serve. Uh, that is the friendship in which we, if uh, we are found to be true believers, are involved. Friendship works both ways, doesn't it? To have a friend, you must be a friend. That's why we cannot be friends with the world house divided cannot stand. A man cannot serve to ask. Jesus is our friend. We are called to be a friend back. And that means we love Jesus as Jesus loves us. We love the Father as Jesus loves the Father. We love our neighbor as Jesus has loved our neighbor. And we are concerned for those uh, engorged and encompassed in sin as Christ is. Reality is that some people run away from believers who are blinded by sin. Sometimes it's because they fear themselves. We're not given the spirit of fear. We're given the spirit of God Almighty. The spirit of Jesus the Christ, the comforter. One who cares for. One who attends to. And that is what we are called to do. To have this mind in you that is in Christ Jesus. It is no more evident uh, anywhere else in the Bible than it is here. Jesus depicted the Son of Man, the friend of sinners. Meant to be a bad thing, but it is a good thing. Consider this. What would you say if one would look at you and say, He's a friend of sinners. Your character 
Let it testify for you of the righteousness of God that is present in your life through his sanctification. But let also your concern for others be defined in that you are a friend of sinners. That you are available to others. And that the church be available uh, to its many members. And that the leadership of the church uh, be available to sinners. That there is no unreal expectation uh, of purity. There is no man that is without sin. If we say that we have no sin, we lie. But if we say that we have no friend, we are in trouble. We are sinners, and that's what it takes to have a friend like Jesus. Admission of sin. And what he offers is forgiveness of sin. He doesn't forgive perfect people. He forgives uh, wretched sinners, honest sinners, keeping short accounts of their sin with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we uh, consider this morning, Lord, we just thank you that we can be found in a group of, or without any pride, if I may say, uh, we may be found in a group of sinners who aren't as ignorant as some. Lord, that through the word that became flesh and through the word that is written before us on these pages, we may know that Jesus is the Christ and that we may know because of that that we are sinful man and that we need redemption, that we need Savior, that we need a great payment for we owe a great debt. It's a wonderful thing to consider that Jesus is our friend. He's not like our other friends. When we call upon the name of our friend Jesus the Christ, he saves. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls this friend Jesus, he will listen. He is in no hurry, Lord, for he knows the day and the hour in which he will return. He knows our need before we ever call upon him. He has made provision before we were even born. I've had no friend like Jesus. Lord, that is the reality for the professing church. That there is no friend like Jesus. Lord, and should we find ourselves thinking that there might be, we have been deceived by idolatry. We pray that you would keep us from that. That we would see the protection that Jesus offers. As we sang this morning, he hides my soul in the cleft of the rock. The chief cornerstone upon which the church has, has been and is being built. This Messiah, this Christ, Lord, we thank you for him. For we know what this friend has done. Long before we ever were, he has gone to the cross took our sins upon his shoulders great heavy burden Lord divine nails they were to hold such a burden what a providence what a powerful God who is man that truly held the weight and the sum of all of those sins Lord, that we may cast our thoughts upon a saving Christ who indeed 
has covered a multitude of sin. And we may know that he wasn't upset after he paid for us, Lord. Wasn't one of those situations that he bailed us out and that he is angry with us. But he is loving, he is kind, he is still concerned, and he is caring in so much, Lord, that he is able to keep us from sin. We pray that that is the reality in your church, that we are trusting upon Jesus, and that we are thinking of Christ in every instance and in every season, that we may look like him, or that we desire to be holy as he is holy. Lord, just thank you for today. Thank you for the word, Lord. We ask that you would bless our time together and our fellowship and the meal uh, that is waiting, Lord, and that we may, may see truly our friend has attended to every need and has cared for us like no other. It's in his great and powerful name in which we pray. Amen.